This is Framework Leadership. I'm Kent Engel, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization to the next level. Today, I'm sitting down with Julissa Arce. Julissa is a political commentator, speaker, writer, and author of my underground American dream. She made national and international headlines when she revealed that she had achieved the American dream of wealth and status by becoming vice president at Goldman Sachs, while at the same time being an undocumented immigrant. She is now a contributor to CNBC and the Huffington Post. Her writing has been published on Fusion, CNN, CNN in Espanol, The Hill, and Univision. She's a leading voice in the fight for social justice, immigrant rights, and education equality. Julissa, thanks for joining us on Framework Leadership today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Julissa, you have uh, you have an amazing personal story that really took you from an undocumented immigrant to the heights of the American financial world while you know at the same time holding on to a secret that could have uh, derailed kind of everything. Talk about your your early life. When and why did you come to the U.S.? Yeah, so my parents had lived in the U.S. since I was about three years old and they would go back and forth between Mexico and the United States. And when I turned 11, they realized that, um, well, I think they knew that, but, but really um, realized that it probably was better for their 11-year-old child to live with them in the U.S. than to live uh, with my grandma back in Mexico. And so when I was 11, I came to the U.S. to be reunited with, with my parents who were already living here. And they had come to the U.S. for the very same reason that many immigrants throughout the history of this country have come here, which is to seek a better life for themselves and for their families. Sure. Well, let me ask you this. Um, what, what effect did your undocumented status have on you? And, and kind of how stressful was that as a, as a kid and how did it affect your family? Yeah, well, I was, so when I first came to the U.S., I was, uh, I, I came here with a visa. So I came here on a plane. And I know that, you know, many people believe that, um, all undocumented immigrants cross the Mexico U.S. border, but 40% of the people who are in the country undocumented came here with some sort of visa. So I had come with, with a tourist visa that expired a few years after I came to live here. And when I realized that I was undocumented, you know, my, I spent most of middle school and high school learning how to hide and making sure that no one so much as suspected that I was undocumented because my family is what is known or called a mixed status family. My little brother was born in the U.S., so he's an American citizen. My parents still had valid visas and I did not. So my biggest fear became getting deported and getting separated from my family. And it's difficult for a teenage girl who, you know, I was trying to do well in school and I was thinking about college and I was thinking about other things that 14 and 15 year old girls think about. Uh, but on top of that, there was a really big cloud hanging over my head that said, you're undocumented and your life is different. And there are certain opportunities that are not available to you. Oh, and by the way, you have to be scared all the time that you're going to be separated from your family. So it was really, really sure. stressful not just for me, but for, you know, for my entire family. So walk me through then, um, you know, having to face that, but then walk me through going to college and then kind of the journey, um, 
you know, to getting at Goldman Sachs and, and kind of the success of that? I, um, so I was able to go to the University of Texas at Austin because in 2001, when I was a senior in high school, Texas became the first state that allowed undocumented students to go to college, pay in-state tuition, and receive state financial aid. And because of that law, I was given the opportunity to go to college. I, of course, made all the, the admission requirements, right? If I hadn't had the grades and the SAT scores, and the letters of recommendation, I wouldn't have gotten in. So I needed to be prepared, but then the state of Texas gave me the opportunity to pursue to continue pursuing this American dream of mine, which was to get an education. And because of that law, I was able to go to college. And once I was in college, I, I almost had to live in this, I, I call it this alternate reality where I really separated the fact that I was undocumented and the fact that if I graduated, I still wouldn't be able to get a, a, a full-time real job because I still didn't have documents. And, and then separated that from, I'm a college student. I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to get the best grades possible. I'm going to go after internships. I'm going to think, uh, I'm going to set really high goals for myself as to where I want to go work after college. And separating those two things really allowed me to, um, not let this undocumented status dictate every single thing that I did. Um, and I worked really hard in college. I, you know, I was able to get good grades and, and land, um, different types of unpaid internships. Um, but again, you know, this big cloud that said you're undocumented kept hanging over my head because one of the, one of the things that, um, I think people often think about is like, why didn't I become documented? Like, why didn't I apply? And the reality for me was that there was, I didn't qualify for anything. So I stayed undocumented, um, not because I wanted to, but because there was no, there was no application I could fill out because I didn't meet any of the eligibility requirements. So putting that aside though, I just focused on my studies and on school. And I, my goal became to go work at Goldman Sachs because I thought that, um, if I wanted to go work on Wall Street, then Goldman was the best place to go. Um, and through a series of internships, I, I ended up landing a job at Goldman Sachs. And I always tell people that when I was 24 years old, I had everything someone could possibly want. I had an amazing career and I made really good money and I had a boyfriend that could dance. So, um, I really had it all, um, when I was 24 years old, but. But, but being undocumented was, of course, always uh, at the forefront. Yeah. And, and so in, in the undocumented status, you're, you're uh, an Hispanic woman working in now a predominantly white male dominated industry. I mean, you, I mean, when you think about the odds, you know, stacked against you, they were pretty strong. So, so as you were in um, this working environment, what gave you the confidence that Really, you could break through those glass ceilings and and really be successful. Well, I I focused on the things that I could control, and I never I never walked into Goldman or I never walked into any other spaces and thought I am a woman, I am Latina, I am undocumented, and therefore I don't belong here. I actually viewed it as the opposite of that. I viewed it as I am a woman, I am Latina, and I'm sitting here with. A majority, as you said, majority white males 
many of whom had had parents and grandparents and uncles who had worked in that industry before, but I was sitting right alongside of them. So I reminded myself all the time that I was smart, that I was qualified, and that I was going to work harder than anyone else to make sure that I had the same opportunities. And so I never, I never thought I'm less than because I'm a woman or because I'm Latina. I always thought I am just as smart. And because I'm just as smart, that's why I'm sitting here. And I reminded myself right. that the hard work that I had done is what had gotten me this far. It sounds like you really, uh, you know, you 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 captured who you are, your gifts, your talents, your experiences, your knowledge, um, and, and use that to excel because that's who you are. And I mean, that's when when we think about Southeastern, I mean, that's what we're all about. Everybody's kind of there. We call it divine design. They are unique and they have a significant contribution to make. And, and that's how you celebrated that in that environment. So so I guess I, I would ask you and, and you've kind of touched on it. What advice would you give, especially young women working in in that industry today, to really celebrate to um, to grow in who they are and what they can advance to? Yeah, I mean the, the the number one goal, the number one advice I always tell people is that you have to do the work. I, people often ask me, "What was your secret?" and and I really don't have any like secret. I, I worked, I did the work, right? So I think that's the number one thing is you have to do the work. There are no shortcuts that you can take to, uh, to get to where you want to go. You, you have to go through each of the steps and there's a lot of, there's a lot that you can learn from taking each step in stride. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to believe in their own abilities because I do think that, um, as women and as people of color, many times we go into this rabbit hole of the imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong here? And, and to, to avoid that by reminding yourself constantly of the skill set that you have, because each of us has a very unique skill set and viewpoint that we bring to the table. And, and so making sure that we're utilizing those unique skills that we have. Um, and then the third thing is really to, to speak up if if there are things that are going on that uh, make you uncomfortable, uh, to speak up and to bring those things up um, to your bosses or to, uh, you know, to to compliance or wherever else there is a place for you to speak up, um, not to keep those things hidden because uh, because you're afraid, um, but to really stand up for yourself and and to and to create a space where you feel like you can thrive. Right. And, and and speaking of, I mean, the experiences and your success, uh, then you you have now, you know, you've written a book and it's called My Underground American Dream. And let's talk about that book for, for just a couple of minutes. What what truly motivated you? What what created the passion to write this? And and what do you hope that it will do? And in, in terms of the the, the results, uh, as people read this and capture your story what what do you hope it will accomplish yeah my the, the biggest reason i wanted to write this book is because growing up i never read books of people who had had the experiences i had being a woman being undocumented um trying to fit into this american culture and so i wanted i wanted other people in my shoes to to feel validated, to to feel like their experiences were validated because someone else had lived them, and to and to see themselves in books. 
Um, and so that's what, that was my biggest motivating factor in, in writing the book. And I think I have accomplished that because many people who have read the book, um, write me notes all the time saying that they feel like, um, someone un understands their experiences. And, and I think even people who, who have never been undocumented, who are not, who don't consider themselves immigrants still find themselves in the book because it ultimately, ultimately my story is not a story of an undocumented woman. My story is an American story of, of resilience and of hard work and of, and of triumph. And, and that is something that many people can, can relate to. How, how, how is, uh, how well was your book received by, by your peers? And, and did your, did your colleagues, you know, uh, you know, would they look at you differently as a result of reading that now? Yeah. So I, I make sure, um, to reach out to all my former colleagues and bosses and let them know that this book was coming out and the things that I was going to share in the book um, about my time at Goldman Sachs and about uh, the experiences I had while I was there. And everyone was really understanding and kind about it. Um, everyone really said, of course, everyone was shocked about some of the experiences that I lived through while uh, maintaining a really professional, uh, while, while maintaining my professionalism and doing my work. Um, but at the same time, everyone said they were even more impressed with my ability to carry myself so professionally in the midst of so much, uh, personal chaos that was going on in my life. Um, and you know, overall, I'm, I'm so happy because the book became a Washington Post bestseller. Uh, it's being developed into a television series and my second book, uh, which is called Someone Like Me, is coming out in uh, in the fall of 2018. So um, I'm really glad that I took that step. I'm really glad that I that I took that leap of faith to share my story and didn't worry about what are others going to think because I was so convicted in the fact that this was going to shed some light about the experiences that people like. Right, and and, and that would lead me. I, I want to ask you, what advice would you give to someone who? knows to do the right thing is about uh to do the right thing but knows there will be some tough blow back from it but you're still going to step out and you're going to be courageous and and you're going to do this what how would you guide them in that yeah you know i i i would say that um you know specifically when it comes to sharing your story when you're undocumented it's not the right thing to do for everyone. And there are some real consequences that can come, especially for someone who is still undocumented and given the environment that we're living in right now. So um, it's not the right thing for everyone. But for those people who uh, who want to take a leap of faith, who, like you said, want to do the right thing uh, in any situation, not just to share your story, uh, I, I think you know someone once told me that when you stop feeling nervous, it's the time... It's, it's when it's time to do something else. And the way that I, the way that what I took that to mean is that whenever you're taking a really big step, whenever you're trying to do something great, whenever you're trying to change the status quo, uh, you are going to feel nervous. It's going to feel really nerve wracking, um, because you're doing something that is big and that it's important. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't be a big deal. And so the number one thing I would say is to make sure that you surround yourself with people who are supportive, whether that's your family or your friends or your church community, people who are going to be there to support you. Because you know, I would be lying to you if, if I said that I've never had tough times doing this. 
I get, um, I get sometimes really, um, nasty emails and comments from people who don't agree with my point of view, who, who, uh, disagree with, with some of the choices that I have made when I was undocumented. Um, but I know that I have people to fall back on. Um, so that's the first thing is to make sure that you have people who are going to be there to support you because there are going to be difficult times. Um, and the other, you know, for me, uh, my faith has been something that has carried me, that has carried me through my entire life. And, um, and knowing that I have a purpose and that I have been redeemed and that, and that no matter what happens, um, I know, I know who and, and what I was made for. Uh, and that Absolutely. has always helped me um, through any any situation. And that's so, so good. You know, uh, let's talk about DACA. And I think, you know, Southeastern University has been on the leading front to support um, uh, DACA and our dreamers. And, and I've had the privilege to be a founding president uh, of the uh, President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration. And we've been leading the way on this issue as well and, and trying to give significant voice to it. Um, you speak to so many of our, our DACA students and dreamers. Tell us what they're going through right now and some of those conversations you had. I, I mean, when you hear human story and you sit down uh, eye to eye and listen to just as we've just heard your story, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And that's why we want to we want to work hard to provide a solution for them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very difficult when I speak. To DACA students, because one, uh, I I I know what they're going through because I lived through it, uh, and it's I can also see the sadness and frustration in their eyes because it's one of the situations where you, they were told, uh, "Come forward, come out of the shadows, give us your information." Uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna give you a work permit and we're gonna protect you from deportation. And so many of these DACA students came out and they have been working really hard. They are in our colleges and universities. Some of them are first responders. Some of them are teachers. Uh, some of them have become doctors and lawyers. And so they have, they have done what we asked them to do, which is work hard. Uh, and, and to be, to, you know, to be American. And, and they very much feel like they are American. And now it feels like we're cutting their legs from under them and saying, you know, we do did everything right. You did everything we asked you to do. But now we are basically stealing your future. That's what it feels like. It feels like their future has been stolen from them. Um, because they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They don't know whether they're going to be able to continue to, to go to work whether they're going to continue to be with their families, have dinner with their families tonight. There are so many people who are scared today that their mom or their dad might not come home because they get picked up by immigration enforcement. So um, it, they're, they're in a very difficult situation. And at the same time, I continue to be in such awe of them because they're not giving up. They're not, um, you know, they're, even as we see the headlines fading away, um, they continue to be in Washington and marching and speaking out for their right to be here, for their right to contribute to this country. Um, so I, I, I'm mostly inspired by them. Frankly, when I speak to them, I, I, I look at anything that is going on in my life that I view as an issue or a problem. And I think, wow, what a great privilege it is 
that I am an American citizen now and that no matter what is going on in my life, I am not in danger of being separated from my family anymore. And it puts everything in perspective when I talk to, when I talk to these young people. Um, and I tell them not to give up because you never know what's going to happen. And all we can do is to continue to work hard. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing. So many, there's so many issues that people just don't understand about these, these wonderful, uh, wonderful students and young people and that are here and they're already contributing to society. I mean, my goodness, many of them are in the workforce. They're serving as educators. They're, they're uh, serving in business. They're serving in the military. I mean, just they are making significant contribution. There's, there is a debate about how much immigrants contribute to our country. And you have, of course, that unique vantage point putting, uh, being in the finance industry and an immigrant yourself, but putting aside all the, beautiful things immigrants immigrants add to our culture and society what are some of the practical things that you voice that that they they contribute to our uh, economy that that a lot of people just don't understand yeah i mean i think you know i think sometimes it is hard for for us to make the argument that immigrants contribute to the society or they contribute to our economy um because it's hard for us to really see it but i think that you know i live in california um, and I, I live in Los Angeles and my in-laws live in Santa Barbara. So every weekend, um, when I, uh, when we go visit them on the weekend, I see the immigrants in the strawberry field. I see them with my own eye picking those strawberries. When I eat a piece of shrimp that doesn't have a tail on it, um, somebody took off that tail from that shrimp and it was very likely the hands of an undocumented woman. Um, the blueberries that we throw in our smoothies uh, and in our in our fruit bowls um, were very much were very likely picked by an undocumented worker. Um, the meat that we eat was probably processed and packaged by an undocumented worker. And so we uh, every day in our lives, if we just stop to pay a little bit of attention, we can actually see the contributions of these people um, uh, who 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 work so hard to tend the soil. Uh, of this country and and I think that if we did that if we stepped back and we we just stopped to think how much they contribute um and you know I think I think beyond that um it, it's more than just the economic contributions that that immigrants make to this country I mean America is this beautiful place and, and is this beautiful culture because immigrants throughout history have contributed from their own cultures and brought those into this country and so um you know, yes, immigrants contribute to the country, to the economy. We pay taxes. I mean, undocumented immigrants pay a hundred billion dollars, have paid a hundred billion dollars um, of of taxes into the Social Security fund. Uh, but beyond that, you know, immigrants are people just like you and I, who who just want to work hard, who just want to be able to provide to their families and who have dreams and ambitions and aspirations just like the rest of us. Uh, and that's, and that's the thing we just, we need to continue to fight. And, and, and I guess my question is what, what would be some practical things we can do to help the dreamers and influence uh, our congressional leadership to get this legislation passed? I mean, they had a prime opportunity uh, uh, not long ago, and now it seems to be fading a little bit. But what are what are a couple things that we just need to keep doing to uh, urge a permanent solution and create a pathway for citizenship for these um, DACA students and and dreamers? Yeah. So there there um, there are three things that 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 people can do, I and mean, there are more things, but there are three things that I'll mention. Number one, 
is to continue calling your Congress people and your, your senator. Um, that is an, that is the best way, uh, the most visible way to stay, to keep this issue at the forefront of their mind because they want to hear from their constituents. It's one thing if I go to Washington and I talk to, uh, house members of every district, which I do. Uh, but it's another thing if you sitting at home pick up the phone and call your congressional district and you say, I am your constituent. I want you to do, I want you to find a permanent solution for the streamers because they're in my community and I care about them. Uh, that really does go a really, really long way. Um, so that's the number one thing. Just keep calling, keep calling, keep calling every day. Pick up the phone and call. Um, the second thing that people can do, which is a very, very practical thing can, that they can do is they can contribute to uh, the DACA renewal fund because of um, some of the court decisions that have happened in the last in the last, in the past few months. And I won't bore you with all the details, but because of some of the court um, rulings, uh, some DACA recipients are still eligible to reapply to have their DACA renewed. Uh, many of them, though, don't have the DACA renewal processing fee, which is uh, around five hundred dollars. So there are some funds that people can contribute to that will help this DACA recipient renew their work permit and be able to stay in the country. Um, and then the third thing that people can do is uh, they can they can mentor a DACA student. They can um, get to know a DACA student, and um, and I'm sure that there are many uh, organizations in 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 their communities that they can reach out to where they can connect with DACA students and just get to know them as people and, um, and then for them and provide them support. Good, good, uh, great suggestions. Uh, hey, one final question, and then I want to move in a quick uh, lightning round. Uh, some fun questions I always ask our guests. Um, and uh, the, this last question is, you mentioned it just a little bit ago, but you became an American citizen in 2014. Uh, what was that moment like for you? Oh, it was, it was one of the most... Um, a real beautiful moment uh, of my life. I mean, we, you know, we have to recite um, uh, an oath of allegiance, where we, um, we, you know, we, we say we, we freely want to become American citizens, and we're making, we're becoming American citizens by choice. And uh, and my voice kept cracking uh, because I was so emotional that it was really important for me to say every single word. And so um, I took a deep breath and I and I finished saying the oath and. Um, and the judge that presided over my, my, my citizenship ceremony, I'll never forget what he said. He said, look around you. There are 54 different countries represented in this room. And to become an American citizen means to accept the country, to accept the world as your own. Um, and I always remember those words. And, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful day. Wow powerful moment and we want that moment to happen for so many more so we will continue to work hard yeah. uh, to hopefully urge congress to make um a permanent solution for our daca daca recipients and and all the dreamers and and just a pathway for citizenship to people who want to come into this country and uh live a life that uh is full of hope and uh, we are going to push hard for that hey just want to close with three uh, quick uh, lightning round questions and and I ask these to all of our guests, and it's always fun to kind of hear. Uh, first question is, uh, man, you have a perfect uh, calendar day that is cleared, and you want to have a perfect day off. What does a perfect day off look like for you? Uh, that's easy. 
I uh, perfect it for me looked like going to going on a bike ride along the beach and then going to a good winery and tasting some great wines, eating some good food and then just hanging out at home with my husband and my cats. What uh, what historical leader uh, would living or dead would you most like to sit down over a cup of coffee? I would love to meet Pancho Villa. He is the the Mexican revolutionary hero. Um, and I would just, I, it was such a, it was just such a different time. And, uh, he's such an iconic figure, um, that I would, I, I have so many questions for him. Wow. That'd be a powerful conversation. That's for sure. Uh, final question. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your next, uh, big dream that you want to accomplish? Oh my gosh. I have so many. Um, I think, you know, if, 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 if the one thing that I could do uh, is to pass the Dream Act so more people like me can uh, can pursue their dreams and be American citizens and not be afraid to be separate from the family. So that's the one thing that I got to do the rest of my life. I would consider that a really good life. Well, Julissa, thanks for joining us today on Framework Leadership. I can tell you, you can learn a lot more about Julissa Arce on julissaarce.com. Make sure you take time to go there and uh, be be encouraged with a lot that she has been a part of and shares. So thank you again for being a part. Thank you so much. One question that has always intrigued me is why do leaders stop growing? You see it all the time. A leader builds up an incredible organization that accomplishes great things only to have it fizzle and die later down the road. What happens to them? Why do leaders struggle to find continued success? I think if you study the stories of leaders who stopped growing and, and then faded out, when you study them, they often demonstrate one or more of the following characteristics. Number one, they think they've arrived. Some leaders experience you know, a small degree of success and believe they've reached the top. They have their accomplishments, start taking it easy, and then eventually become as relevant <laughs> as the video store. Number two, they rely on what they did in the past. It's surprising how many leaders try to guide their teams into the future by relying on what worked decades ago. Doing what you've always done won't produce results you haven't yet experienced. Leaders who rely on past strategies have already seen their best days ahead. Number three, they serve a position and not a constituency. You know, the Peter Principles states that uh, people will be promoted until they reach their level of incompetence. When this happens, leaders rely on their titles rather than their skills to guide their teams. Leaders should be selected based on their effectiveness and influence because an organization will never outperform its leader. If you have inefficient and ineffective leaders, you'll have an organization that squanders its resources and I think eventually fails. And number four, they think the organization exists to serve them. Unethical leaders often view their organizations as a means to an end. They misuse resources for their own good. They take advantage of the flexibility built into the schedule. They use their platforms to elicit personal favors. Leaders who are always looking for what's in it for them will never guide an organization toward its best days. These are all issues that every leader will face at some point during their leadership. The trick is to be on the lookout for these habits and tendencies to recognize when they're affecting your leadership and take action to stamp them out. As a leader, you're either growing and changing or you're not. Hey, I'm Kent Engel. Thanks for listening to the Framework Leadership Podcast.
To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com. Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Ingle and on Facebook at Kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.